The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Would you please look with me in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. And he, that's speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. That means in his incarnation, he has given to us the testimony by his visibility the glory and majesty of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That's his inheritance position, that he inherits all that God has created through him. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to that text. On this Reformation Sunday, I think you'll see in a moment why I think it's so important that we use this text. But can I just uh, maybe respond to something? Uh, I've been asked the question, and it's an excellent question, um, a very thoughtful question and a insightful question. And the question was, Pastor, you know, this I know we've been doing Nehemiah Day now for quite some, uh, I think this is the fifth year, if I'm not mistaken. We've been doing Nehemiah Day. What a time of refreshment, Pastor. I've enjoyed it. It's renewal just the just to spend time in God's Word, singing it, confessing it, reading it, uh, coming to the table of the Lord together, a small group, personal prayer time, focused time together, seeking the face of the Lord to be refreshed and renewed in Him. And uh, and But can I ask you a question? I said, sure. I said, why are we doing it this year on Reformation Sunday? I mean, normally we do it either before or after. Uh, why do it on Reformation Sunday? Well, there are multiple reasons why this year we're doing it on Reformation Sunday. But I want to give you the most important reason for me as to why it's on Reformation Sunday. And that's because of something that's directly related to Reformation Sunday. Uh, Nehemiah, let me, if I can just go ahead and anticipate something I want to get to at the end. Uh, this is kind of like, uh, you know, um, I'm going to give you the takeaway before I get to the takeaway. And, uh, but still, I want you to listen to everything to get there again. Uh, and that's, um, and that's this. Um, this nation is in desperate need of a gospel awakening. Let me just be as clear as I can. 
I know many people with many concerns from multiple motivations that are telling you if this happens, then we can turn the nation around from its free fall into cultural dissipation, depravity, and a rebellion against God. It's clear that's there. There's no reason to deny it. It's there. But I want to be as clear as I can. With all due respect to all who call upon you, some of good motives, some of bad motives, I want to be as abundantly clear as I possibly can. And that's this. This nation has no hope apart from a gospel awakening that sweeps this nation from shore to shore. That's its only hope. I want to be as clear as I can. I also want to be this clear. When God does gospel awakenings, he first revives his church. Because that's where it comes from. And to revive his church, he does a reformation in the leadership of the church. With a reformation of leadership in the church, he God then whenever God decides to do something, he always raises up leadership, key leaders, yes, but teams of leaders. I actually wrote a whole book because of that. He raises up teams of leaders. I mean, we're going to be talking about Luther in just a little bit and Calvin and Knox and Cranmer. Those are great reformers. Well, you wouldn't have had Cranmer without Latimer and Ridley in, in God's providence. You wouldn't have had Luther without Melanchthon. You wouldn't have had Knox without Goodman. You wouldn't have had Calvin without Beza. When God does something, he does raise up key leaders, but he surrounds them with other leaders. And through that, God then brings renewal, revival, and a robust movement of a love to Christ that infiltrates his church so that the members of the body of Christ aren't consumed about themselves, but consumed with a passion about what I just read, the preeminence of Christ in all things. It's not me or my feelings or my but that what I want, but all of that we die to. When Christ moves in his church, we embrace Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is, I've been crucified. I'm dead. I have been crucified with Christ. I am no longer alive. I've been crucified with Christ. And then what? I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live. Oh, wait, I thought you were dead. Yes, I'm dead to myself. But now i got a new life unto Christ. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who has saved me, who has redeemed me, who has set me free from my sins. That kind of a church is what God begins to use to ignite Gospel, the fires of a gospel awakening. That's one of the reasons that Reformation Sunday is so important, because that's exactly what he did. He moved powerfully. He moved powerfully throughout the world. I just, I forgot one thing I wanted to say there. I need to say it. Why? You've already anticipated why I believe Nehemiah Day on this. Because of the great need we have in this nation. Because of that great need. That we have for a gospel awakening, which means we have a great need for revival. 
which means we have a great need for reformation, which means we've got a great need for prayer and the word. And that's all Nehemiah Day is. And Nehemiah Day isn't to have that on Nehemiah Day, but to have that on Nehemiah Day, praying and asking God that it would become every day in the lives of his people. And one particular principle out of the Reformation undergirds this. Let me get to it this way. The text that you have in front of you, Colossians chapter 1, highlights one of the solas that you did earlier in your, as we were doing the confession. As we were doing the confession, those five solas, you'll remember one of them was sola Christas, that Christ alone saves us. And it comes, the concept comes from many texts of Scripture. The biblical truth is affirmed throughout Scripture. But one of the places that you see it gloriously is right here in Colossians. And if I can just use illustratively a personal testimony. I became a Christian when I was 21 years old. And I've heard about Christianity, but I became a Christian when I was 21. And then almost immediately, people begin to say, you know, when you're called to the ministry, there's an internal calling and an external calling. Well, I didn't have a lot of internal calling. On the contrary, I did not think I was called to the ministry, although there was some external calling in the wonderful little church that we were a part of. Uh, We think you're called to the ministry. I said, well, no, I don't think so. I think I'm called to make money to support guys that are called to the ministry. That's what I think I'm called to do. And uh, so I had my own idea of what I was called to do. Well, that's I was in that struggle for over two years. I actually surrendered to a call to the ministry at 1.30 in the morning in a tobacco field in Greenville, North Carolina. I went in, woke up my wife, and I said, um, and I said to her, I said, honey, I think I'm called to the ministry. And she said, okay. And it was 1.30, so I thought maybe she wasn't quite awake. So I shook her one more time. She had already been asleep about six hours by 1.30 in the morning. So I, uh, I shook her again. And I said, honey, I, I know you didn't sign on for this. Let me say it again. I think I'm called to the ministry. And she said, okay. And I said, well, I think I need to, we need to maybe go somewhere. Now, you can do a lot of ministry at East Carolina University, but there wasn't going to be a lot of ministry training at East. I mean, I'd already tried it with one class called Comparative Religion, and I almost got kicked out of, this, out of the university because I was just having a hard time letting some of the things pass that were being said by the teacher or professor. And so I knew that I wasn't going to get a lot. I could, I could do a lot of ministry, but I wasn't going to get a lot of training. And uh, she said, okay. And uh, she said, that's fine with me. I, you know, when I was 13, I went Ridgecrest. I went forward uh, to recommit my life to the Lord. And I said to the Lord, I would like to be a missionary or a pastor's wife. So I've been waiting on to find out which one you were going to be. And uh, so you could catch up with me. So uh, I called up and uh, there I was, a pastor. And I was trying to decide where to go to school. And um, so um, I'm in a school of, you know, 20 Four thousand, something like that, and um, and um, and then uh, uh, and I began to look around. Well, to get training, there weren't any twenty-four thousand uh, uh, student bodies uh, that where I needed to go. So I looked at NIAC up in New York. I looked at um, I looked at Tacoma Falls Bible College. I looked at Columbia Bible College, as it was called at the time. And then um, when my spiritual father, whose wife had graduated from uh, Covenant College, said, you need to go to Covenant College. 
And I said, uh, okay. So uh, Cindy and I got in the car and we rode over there. And we got there and um, very first thing I met was this verse. The college verse. That in all things, Christ would have preeminence. And then I sat down with a professor who explained what that means is you need to develop a Christian mind. You need to believe in the infallibility, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of God's word and frame everything you think and filter everything that comes to you through those glasses. And that's what we're going to try to help you do. And if you do it right, then your focus is Christ. That in all things, Christ would have preeminence. And then I walked into the chapel and heard 500 students singing the college hymn. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. All my being ransomed powers. All my thoughts. All my doing. All my hours. Now, I know I, I wasn't an idiot. I knew that nobody would do that perfectly. But to say that intentionally, that in all things Christ would have preeminence. And what Paul tells the people at Colossae, now watch, who are being enculturated. If you'll read all of Colossians, you'll find he says, quit being swept away by vain philosophies of men. Quit being swept away by the ideas of men in the culture. Wisdom is from God, revealed in his word, and it all points to the preeminence of Christ. And then he gives three things about that Christ, that he is preeminent in that he is the creator. The Father created all things through him and for him. And then he brings the preeminence of Christ in redemption. And he says that the, he says that Christ is the head of his church. He is the redeemer of his elect. And we are at peace with God and have been set free from the power and the, and the penalties of sin because of Jesus that he might be preeminent. And then not only is he our creator, not only is he our redeemer, but he in his providence is our sustainer. Do you see what the text said? In him, all things hold together. He upholds us by the word of his power. He is the one that gives us life and breath. He is preeminent in creation. Redemption and providence. And he will be preeminent on the day of judgment when all of humanity stands before him and your only hope in that day is your name is in his book, the Lamb's book of life. Well, that's the glorious truth of the preeminence of Christ. But that had become clouded, shrouded, not simply by the surrounding culture in the 16th century, but by the church itself. The predominant church of that age had actively clouded, distorted, and adulterated the majesty of God, the authority of his word, the glory of the Father, and the preeminence of Christ, 
and the grieving of the Holy Spirit. That's what was taking place in the 16th century. And then, a nondescript, relatively unknown professor in a relatively unknown, out-of-the-way college in a relatively unknown city of Germany called Wittenberg. Early on an October 31st morning, arose and went to what was basically the Facebook of the age, the social media of the age. May I go back to my age, the bulletin board. And he nailed the 95 theses calling for a debate with the authorities and clergy of the Roman church over these issues. Little did he know when he woke up that morning, went and nailed it to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg. Little did he know the firestorm that he was about to ignite. And nothing would be the same as a reformation would lead to a revival. And a revival would lead to an unbelievable spread of Christianity that wouldn't stop until it began to circle the entire globe in the 16th and 17th and then later on in the 18th and 19th century. That's what happened that morning. You ever get the idea that God loves to use ordinary people in ordinary places to do extraordinary things? I mean, who would have thought that? But that's what happened. And as it began to spread and as it began to move, it began to go from town to town and hamlet to hamlet and place to place. And and what began to unfold is what I call a threefold reformation. There were three things that began to happen out of that reformation. First of all was a reformation that reclaimed the gospel. If I was to ask you, is everything in the Bible true? You would say to me, thank you. All right. If I was to say to you, is everything in the Bible important? You would say to me, you didn't say it. Quite. You got to be a little bit more. Come on now. Everything important in the Bible? Leviticus? All right. Thank you. So don't stop reading through the Bible when you get there. All right. So here is everything. Everything in the Bible is profitable. Is that right? Is everything in the Bible as important as everything else in the Bible? No, I I did it for you. No. No, there's some things of first importance. In fact, the Bible identifies something that's important, but of first importance. And if you get that wrong, you're going to get everything else wrong. And what is that? That is the gospel. First Corinthians 15. I delivered to you that which is of first importance, the gospel. And that's what got reclaimed is the gospel. And it got to be, it's kind of like they, they were like us. They like to put things in bumper stickers. Sola fide, salvation by faith alone. Sola gratia, 
Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Sola Christus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And it began to be preached. And people were loosened from all of the, were loosened from the superstitions and the corruption. Why did Martin Luther do that that morning? Well, I am not uh, to kind of do you just to do a little bit of popular history. I believe he went to that thing that morning, went to that door that morning and nailed those 95 theses looking basically for a debate or hopefully for an academic debate. I think he did it for three reasons. Uh, and that one reason was he had been utterly devastated by a recent trip to headquarters, Rome. When he saw the corruption, when he saw the manipulation, when he saw the emptiness, when he saw not only the, the corruption, but the immorality of the leadership of the church, it devastated him. Then he had been commissioned to teach on the book of Romans. And he had been exposed in his study of the Bible to the gospel of God, which we are taking the time to work our way through because I believe Romans is as important for us today in our situation as it was for Luther in that day where the Reformation was so desperately needed. There's a third thing. Across the river from Wittenberg was their sister city. A bridge connected them across the river. Over there in that city, a man had arrived. He had been commissioned in a money-making scheme uh, out of the papal authority. He had been commissioned on a money-making scheme using the selling of indulgences to people as to how they could free their loved ones from purgatory through offerings. He had a traveling puppet show, had a drama show, a theater, a theatrical presentation. He even had little songs. I mean, commercial uh, ditties songs, are, they're not, they're not uh, new. Uh, he had one every time in the, uh, when you come up and put your money in the offering for your loved one who is in purgatory, every time in the coffer a coin rings from purgatory, another soul shall spring. And the manipulation of what was happening, Luther was absolutely committed. He is not coming to this city. I'll set up whatever I need to do so he can't get here among my people whom I care for. And then with those motivations, he nailed that 95 Theses. And that cut loose, first of all, a, 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 a capturing of the gospel. That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Now listen, can I take just a moment here to make sure you understand this? When we're saved by, when we say you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are not saying that grace is alone. No, when God's grace comes, you get changed lives. God's grace changes lives. But your changed life doesn't save you. 
It's the evidence you have saving grace. Saving faith, saved by grace alone through faith alone. Faith is never alone. Just read the book of James. Faith has the evidence of works. But like grace, what comes through grace changed life. What comes through faith, obedience to the Lord. Your obedience as an evidence of faith, your changed life as an evidence of grace, does not migrate to your justification. I pray, I pray you know the joy of obedience and the great testimony of a transformed life that people see in you and the joy of walking in obedience to Christ is yours and growing. But as I pray for that and long for that, I want you to know something. As you grow and manifest a changed life, as your faith is evidenced by works, you will never be more justified than you are are right now. In fact, you'll never be more justified than the day you were converted. Because you're not justified by your works, you're justified by the work of Christ. Your works are the evidence that your Savior, who is ascended, who did the work for your justification, is now working on you for your sanctification. Well then, Pastor, if if I don't, um, if my work, if my works don't cause God to love me more or justify me, what what does it do? Oh man, it gives you great intimacy with the Lord. It makes you more effective for the Lord. It gives you great joy. There's no greater joy in your life than to honor the Lord with a changed life and with obedience. But it doesn't add to your justification. You see, the existing church in the 16th century would have said you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But what they wouldn't have put was alone. What you do was necessary to to, um, to effectually accomplish your salvation. Your baptism positioned you as saved and your works is what was necessary to bring forth that salvation. We believe that works are there to give glory to the Savior. Our salvation is in the finished work of Christ. So there was a reformation of the gospel. Let me give you a second reformation. There was a reformation of worship. Do you realize, can you just look in front of you? you do you all see a Bible? you see a Bible in your pew? Do you see a hymn book? Well, whoever put that there in your, in your pew in the 16th century would have been killed for that. That's only there because people died to get that in your hands. You see, up until then, worship was done something, was something that the cleric, the clerics did behind a screen. And every once in a while they'd lift up the bread or lift up the wine, let you see it. You could hear them. Now, you couldn't understand them because they worshipped in a language that you didn't know. But as they worshipped in a language you didn't know, and as they were over there behind the screen, you superstitiously were just to show up and that was part of your penance. That was part of what would save you. But you didn't worship. You didn't participate. And you did not have a Bible in your language, nor did you hear worship in your language, nor could you participate. I mean, we're going to get, we've been doing this for an hour. 
You, you stood up, you gave, you read, you confessed, you're hearing, you're speaking, you're singing. You're doing, that would have never been done. You couldn't do that. But there was a reformation of worship. God-centered worship, not church-centered worship. God-centered worship that was Trinitarian. God-centered worship that carefully, after the Reformation, said this, we can only do in worship what God's Word tells us to do. God-centered worship, Trinitarian worship, biblically framed elements of worship, and congregational participation. Worship was a verb not a noun naming an event you went to. It was a noun describing what we did when we came together, what we were to do, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Maybe I could put it this way. I like the way my friend Larry Roth said it. He said, you know, in the Reformation came, Luther was really consumed in that first uh, part of the Reformation. Get the gospel right. Get the gospel right. And then along came Calvin, who said, yeah, and the other doctrines as well. So he writes the Institutes of the Christian Religion, six editions of it. And then Calvin said, and by the way, worship needs reforming. Worship needs reforming, too. And so they began to work their way through it. And then, well, it just took a Presbyterian to bring it home. His name was Knox. So, here's the way, I like the way Larry says it. Luther was focused on the reformation of the gospel, and when he went to the reformation of worship, he said, you know, some of this stuff isn't right. So he reached into the pot of worship and picked out what ought not to be there. And then Calvin came along, and Calvin said, hey, thank you, Mr. Luther, but that's not enough. And Calvin took the pot and emptied it. Then he put back in the pot what he thinks belongs there. And then Knox came along and said, thanks, both of you. I'm just going to go buy a new pot. And he said, let's get to a real look at what does it mean to have a worship service that's framed by the essentials of God's word. Well, that's what happened. We had a reformation of worship. And then thirdly, we had a reformation of leadership. Men of God, preachers of the word, leaders in the church who were, who were called forward to serve the Lord. What did we have up until then? We had corruption of doctrine and we had corruption of leaders. That leaders had been corrupted and were corruptible. And, and it is that that we begin to see piety return to the leadership of Christ's church. Well, when that happens, obviously that happens because we become committed to the preeminence of Christ. But something else happened in the Reformation, and this is where I want to bring you in conclusion this morning. Something else happened in the Reformation. Those three issues all had something in common. You couldn't get the gospel right, and you couldn't get worship right, and you couldn't get leadership right unless you got this right. Sola Scriptura. The Scripture alone gives me the gospel. The Scripture alone tells me what Christ's church mission, message, and ministry is. The Scripture alone 
says what it means to lead the flock of God. Satan's strategies have not changed. He wants to intimidate. He wants to infiltrate. And he, um, and he um, wants to imitate. In infiltration, he's always done that. You see, in the 16th century, the scripture had been hidden. It had been distorted. It had been set aside. Pastor, that's terrible. Yeah, in fact, it was done formally by the church. The church said the final authority is the scripture and the traditions of the church. Well, folks, you can't have two authorities. No man can serve two masters. One's going to rise above the other. Guess which one had risen above the scripture? The traditions of men. But Luther says, along with the other reformers, men err, councils err, popes err, bishops err, all men err, but God's word abides forever. It's true. And out of came sola scriptura, the infallibility of the scripture, number one. The inerrancy of the scripture, number two. God's word is trustworthy. Then the sufficiency of scripture, all that we need for life and godliness is in the scripture. And fourthly, the clarity of the scripture. Are there things in the Bible that are hard to understand? Yes. But because the Bible is infallible, inerrant, and sufficient, then nothing in the Bible can contradict. Is that right? So if I've got a difficult text, the best way for me to... Certainly I can ask for help from pastors and commentators and people. But if I want the ultimate answer to that issue, I go to the clearer passage. Because whatever that is that's hard to understand cannot contradict what's, what's clear. So you have the simplicity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and seventhly, and, and then fifthly, the accessibility of Scripture. God's Word in your language, the Word of God, and God's Word preached in your language, the voice of God to your heart and to your life. Well, there's much more I'd like to say, but I'm out of time, and I just say this to you, and we'll just get to experience everything I said from three to seven tonight. That's why I love Nehemiah Day, and I'm glad this year it's on this day. Sola Scripture. We're going to pray God's Word. We're going to sing God's Word. We're going to confess God's Word. We're going to share God's Word. We're going to hear God's Word, and then we're going to display God's Word in the Lord's Supper. Folks, this world and the culture you're in, and I want to say this. I make no bones I want to get the gospel to every nation in this world, but I don't want to skip over mine. And I have no problem. I say no to nationalism that wants to make Jesus the tribal God of America. But I say yes to King Jesus taking this nation for the work of the kingdom. And this burns in my heart. That just burns here. And I, and I take, I just look at the reformers. They had it too. Look at what Zwingli said about God using him in Switzerland. Look at what Calvin did. He sent missionaries all, did you know he sent a hundred and something missionaries to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil before there was Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 1563? 
He had a heart for the world. But do you know where he sent 1,300 missionaries? Right back to France. The birth of the French Huguenot Church. His home nation. You remember the guy that he trained up in Geneva? A guy by the name of Knox. He went home under a death warrant from three different queens. All named Mary. And when he landed on the shore... Knowing a death warrant had been issued for him, he said, give me Scotland or I die. And then, of course, what about Cranmer with Latimer and Ridley? What about them? As they died at a stake in Oxford in 1565. And as the flames were leaping, it was Latimer that turned to Ridley and said, Play the man. Be of good cheer. For by God's grace, just they were lighting them. (laughs) He said, by God's grace, we shall light a candle for Christ that shall not be put out in England. So I make no bones of praying for a gospel awakening in my nation and a revival. But folks, here's what I want you to know. Please don't look out there for it to start Here's where we look. God started in here. Started in me. Not out there and come to me. If he does it that way, praise the Lord. And when it gets to me, I want to be ready. Start it in me. Start it in us. And it starts with prayer and the word. You say, Pastor, don't you see all the shrinking numbers of the evangelical church? I sure do. I understand what's being said. But the answer, you know what our problem is? The problem in the Reformation, please look at this, I'm going to close. The problem in the Reformation was magisterium. Harry, what's that? Big word, okay, it's there. Magisterium is something that royally rules. What royally ruled in the days of the Reformation? What royally ruled in the church was the cleric, ecclesiastical magisterium. Do you know what rules today? Cultural magisterium. The church is gauging and conforming its message to the culture to be accepted and applauded. We must embrace biblical magisterium. The scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice. And then something will be seen different. Out there, what does culture The culture of self marked by immorality, insanity, absurdity, and lethality, confusion, chaos, and death. What does it bring? It brings anger. It brings disappointment. What does biblical authority bring? Biblical authority brings a people who love Christ. A people who love one another out there. It, now, listen to me, please. Out there is division, political, social. Out there is anger, the anger of man. Out there is uh, despair. Out there is destruction. In here should be the preeminence of Christ. Marked. By the love of the brethren, the communion of the saints, men and women being discipled, everyone evangelizing everybody everywhere.
marriages being shepherded, families being guided, God's people equipped to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world with lives that will attract people. There was a man I talked to just this morning on my way in. He's been befriending his neighbor. And when he talked to his neighbor, the neighbor began to talk with him and his family and kept talking and kept talking, eventually sharing. This neighbor shared a very um, immoral, ungodly, blasphemous, profane lifestyle Addictive sin, as if it was nothing, but keeps coming back to them. Do you know what the neighbor said? I just, can I just spend time with y'all? Your family, now listen to this, your family seems to be filled with hope. Your family loves each other. I just like being with you, can I? Now, that's not going to get somebody saved. You've got to be saved by faith, and faith comes from hearing the word. But a people who love the Lord, one another, and their enemies, a people who are growing in grace, the culture there will try to kill it, but at the same time, it is attracted to it because they don't have it and have no hope for it. And may God grant that to us, a reformation through a reformation of leadership and family. And say, well, Harry, we're losing numbers. I know. But listen, have you ever noticed that whenever God does something extraordinary, he raises up, he raises up leaders. And he gets us to the size he wants us. Gideon, 300, that's enough. God loves To bring awakenings through a godly remnant who love him and are committed to him. So here's your takeaway. A great commitment to the Great Commission. And within our midst, the culture of the Great Commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. And your neighbor as yourself. Father, thank you for the moments in your word together. Thank you for the privilege of worship and praise to our God today. Would you allow this Lord's Day to be special for your glory and our growth in grace? Father, I pray that your people will be built up to the praise of your name. Thank you for all we've been able to sing today. And it's all because of Jesus and amazing grace. And I pray in Jesus' name even as we bathe in amazing grace. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.